One of the doctrines of the church of God is the doctrine of the place of safety. That just before Christ's return, during the great tribulation, God's faithful and zealous church will be protected in a place of refuge somewhere here on earth. It's not the only doctrine we focus on. It's not the only thing we talk about all the time, but uh, it is an important doctrine, and it's important to address it from time to time. We've had a number of articles uh, and sermons in recent years uh, on it. Mr. John Alguin had an LCN article, Is There a Real Place of Safety?, back in uh, July, August 2001. Uh, Mr. Wyatt Seselka, an LCN article, Place of Safety, a Conditional Promise?, in July, August 2009, and a couple of sermons were given in the last few years, one by Mr. Siselka, Directions to the Place of Safety, and one by Mr. Hernandez, Conditions to Enter the Place of Safety. So there are a lot of encouraging and and hopeful uh, things to read and to think about and to hear as we think about uh, the the. One of the prophecies, and it is a prophecy, that God is going to protect his faithful and zealous people in a place of safety. But I'd like to ask two questions today. One is, do you believe in the prophecy of the place of safety? And number two, why does it matter? Why does it matter that we even talk about it? Let's go through a number of uh, scriptures that help to really lay out uh, why the church has taught this for a long time and why we continue to teach and understand and believe the prophecy of the place of safety. We'll turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, and if you want a title, uh, it is the prophecy of the place of safety. We'll, we'll look at some scriptures that make it very clear on this topic. Revelation chapter 12, and uh, let's start in, in verse verse 1. It's really a fascinating chapter that we find here, really going back and, and giving a summary of uh, so many things that happened in church history, including the Old Testament church, going back a long, long ways. And it talks about in, in verse 1, how there was a great sign that appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a garland of twelve stars, the woman symbolizing the church, and in this case the Old Testament church, uh, the nation of Israel. Of course, the Messiah was born out of the nation of Israel in verse 2. And another sign, verse 3, appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, he drew a third of the stars of heaven, threw them to the earth. We, we read and we find out a lot about what happened when Satan rebelled against God and, and managed to convince a third of the angels to as well. Of course, he tried to destroy Jesus when he was born, but he wasn't able to. And finally, in verse 6, then the woman, now it's talking about the New Testament church, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 
1,260 days. Now, this, this fleeing to the wilderness should not be confused with the end-time place of safety. This is talking about a time in the Middle Ages when God's people had to flee from persecution. And I'll just read a little bit from the booklet, Revelation, The Mystery Unveiled by Mr. O'Gwen. He says, in verse 6 of Revelation 12, we read of the woman having to flee in the wilderness to the wilderness to be protected during a period of 1,260 prophetic days, 1,260 literal years. Since this occurs after Christ's ascension, it clearly refers to the New Testament church. Indeed, in the early 4th century A.D., after the Roman emperor Constantine allied with the bishop of Rome, the true church had to flee to remote areas. Historically, a 1,260-year period can be traced from after the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. down to 1585, when the true church began to emerge openly once again. You can read this entire remarkable story in our free booklet, God's Church Through the Ages. And if you haven't uh, read that in a while, it's a, that's a powerful and, and inspiring uh, read to go through the, the history of the church. So he explains that from the time of Constantine to the rise of the British Empire, this was a very dangerous time for God's people, and they had to flee oftentimes into the less populated areas of, of Europe. But finally, finally, there was a time when they had freedom and they had relative security, and, and we have been the beneficiaries of that. We've grown up in a time when we have the freedom to, to worship God. And we've been benefited by that. Going on to the story, it says, War broke out in heaven, verse 7. And this, this appears to be the final war, uh, one that is yet ahead of us. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And he was cast to the earth, that is, Satan the devil. And it says in verse 10, now I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been cast down. So this is a time when Satan the devil, is he, he, he tries to overcome the Father and, and Christ one more time. He fails, and he's cast back down to the earth, and he's very angry, very angry. We see that in verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. And now we come to where he persecutes the woman. Verse 13, the New Testament church, the end time after this final war in heaven, after he's cast back down to the earth, what happens? Verse 13, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman, that is the church, God's church that we are a part of, the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. She's given two wings of an eagle to fly to her place. Now, let's break this down 
A little bit, it doesn't necessarily, and this is not new. We've all heard this before. It doesn't necessarily mean that she has to literally fly. Uh, She could walk as the children of Israel uh, did when they came out of Egypt, and it was said that they that God bore them on his wings as on eagles' wings. Uh, Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, if you want for your notes. And so this certainly could be figurative in terms of how they fly uh, to her place. But clearly, it's talking about the church, the church leaving and going to the wilderness, a place on earth where she is nourished, where she is fed, where she is cared for, where she is protected for a time and times and half a time, meaning three and a half years. We recognize this as being the the tribulation, the three and a half years of tribulation from the presence of the serpent. So what happens then? Verse 15, So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood, but the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of its his mouth. Now, you know, if anyone thinks going to the place of safety is sort of the easy cop-out, read carefully what we just read, those two verses. This will take faith and courage, won't it? Being persecuted before going to the place of safety and even having the, the devil attempting to stop God's people as they're going to the place of safety. We're in for some difficult times, but there's a lot of encouragement as we go through the story. Verse 17, And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who, kept, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. As we've often heard, And heard explain, this is showing that just keeping the commandments of God and believing in Jesus Christ is not necessarily enough to be protected in the Great Tribulation. There is something else. And, of course, that's part of the story as we we go along. But what else does this prove? You know, over the years, there have been some that have argued that God will protect his people in their homes. And could God do that? Of course. He can do whatever he wants. He has the power to do whatever he wants. But will he do that? Well, not according to Revelation 12. The fact that that Satan is enraged because he can't touch that woman. He can't reach her. There's something blocking him from being able to destroy her. That shows that's a powerful proof that God is actually, yes, going to protect some of his people in the place of safety. Pretty clear language that he's talking about the woman, the church, protected as a group, not sort of scattered all the way Uh, as individuals in their home, but going to a special place prepared for her. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15. Let's go there. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15. Again, what we're talking about is a prophecy. Now, have I said that every last one of us are guaranteed to be there? No, I haven't. I haven't said that. 
But there is a prophecy that there are people that are going to be protected. That's the point. We can nail that down. That's very clear. Revelation 12. Notice another example here in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15. Therefore, uh, starting in verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. See the context. Verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The abomination of desolation, some sort of idolatrous worship being set up on the temple mount where God's temple was, where his worship belongs. He says, when you see that, then uh, be ready. There's something happening. Then, verse 16, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. You know, in in other words, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, is not going to be a safe place when these things happen. That's not going to be the place that anybody wants to be. They will need to get out, If it, whoever is in Judea. Verse 17, then, let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. You know, what this is telling us is there are times when it's time to get out and you've got to leave. There are times in history when people have had an opportunity to leave a nation that is falling into a dictatorship, totalitarian dictatorship, and they've left just in time. Nazi Germany, other nations that have fallen into that. Some of our brethren have experienced that. Getting out just in time. There is a time when Christ was warning, uh, there's no time for delay that it's going to happen and the, the, the darkness is going to descend. And when it's time, we must not delay. Now, is it a curse to have children? He says, uh, woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Uh, is God against families? Is God against having children? Of course not. But he's just saying, look, you know, caring for children and keeping track of children is, 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 is difficult even in the best of times. But when you're trying to flee, when you're a refugee, it's just going to be more complicated. It's going to be difficult. Verse 20, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. Interesting. <clears throat> you know, when it's a matter of moving out quickly, a matter of life and death, a matter of perhaps even partially on foot, uh, much more difficult than snow and ice, isn't it? It's much more difficult when the weather is not cooperating. Would Christ have told us this if he wasn't talking about something literal, brethren? Would Christ have given this amount of detail that we are supposed to pray about the time when we must flee? that it not be in, in the winter or on the Sabbath day. And that's an interesting reference to the fact that apparently the Sabbath will still be a, a significant day uh, even at the end time for God's people. The Sabbath will be something that God's people will be keeping even 
right up to Christ's return. Verse 21, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. The worst time of trouble in human history, as Christ says, so bad that if all all humanity would be annihilated if it went too far, if Christ didn't step in. It's a very sobering picture of the future for the generation that finds itself living at that time. And that's us. But it's also a very hopeful and encouraging picture that God weaves in protection in this prophecy when he's talking about the future. Let's turn over to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. And we see another parallel here. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up. And he's referring to the end time if we take the context from the verse just before it. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. Interesting. Michael protects God's people. You know, just by itself, that's a reminder that we have angelic protection. And even an archangel like Michael. And he's going to be leading the protection in that sense for God's people at the very end. Stand up for his people, the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. Does that remind us of what we read in Matthew 24? Of course. It's mirroring. It's talking about the same time. You couldn't have two different times that there were the worst ever. It's talking about the same time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So the, the context, the timing is the resurrection, the end time, again, just before uh, leading up to Christ's return. And he makes this statement about how those who turn many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. You know, as we're talking about physical protection, it's important to, to reaffirm that ultimately we're looking for God's kingdom to come. And that's what we're striving to attain. We want to be in his kingdom. We want to be there. We want to live forever. But you know, along the way, God does offer protection. It's not wrong to, to seek for that as well. Even though the highest priority, certainly, is, is being in God's kingdom and doing whatever it takes to be in God's kingdom, even if it does mean giving up our lives. It's interesting as well here when he speaks of those who turn many to righteousness uh, will shine like the stars forever and ever. Is he talking just about the preachers? Is he talking just about those who write articles or those who are on the telecast? Or is he talking about everyone who is a part of God's work? 
everyone who is supporting and holding up the hands of Mr. Weston and backing this tremendous work. You know, just for your notes, as a reference, Matthew 10, 40, uh, chapter 10 and verse 40, Christ said, He who receives you, he was speaking to the disciples, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. We all get a reward. If we are a part of this work, no matter what job we're doing, no matter how big or no matter how small. And he says, he gives, he who gives one of these little ones only a cup of water in the name of a disciple, he shall by no means lose his reward. You know, if, if our part of the work is, is supporting it financially through our tithes and offerings, we are, are a part of that work. If we get to a point in our life where we don't have the wherewithal to do it, and yet we, to, to tithe, and yet we are striving on our knees, we are praying, we are supporting the, and holding up the hands of those who are, who are having a more direct part in it, we are going to get that reward. Everyone is a part of it. And we will shine like the stars forever. This is a big work. Not a lot of people, but it's a big work. It's a big deal. And what a, what a tremendous thing that we have a part in it. So he says, verse uh, 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end, and many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. We'll come back to that here in a few moments. But keep on going. Verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, one on this river bank and the other on the, that river bank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. Again, that period of three and a half years we see paralleled from Revelation 12. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Although I heard, I did not understand, and I said, Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white, and refined. This certainly appears to be going through the tribulation that there will be some who have to make their garments white, show their faithfulness to God by giving up their life in the tribulation. But the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Verse 11, And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So here we have some interesting things. We already read about how the abomination of desolation is set up, that idolatrous worship of, of some type on the Temple Mount, and that is the, the, the signal uh, for, for God's people to flee. But another detail is added here. 
He says, from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. In other words, there, the, the sacrifices are going to be stopped on the Temple Mount and then replaced with the abomination of desolation. So what does that mean? Well, if they're stopped, they have to be started, don't they? So one of the things that we watch for is sacrifices to be done on the Temple Mount. And this is a period of uh, 1,290 days, so if we count back from the, uh, the resurrection, the establishment, when Christ began to directly intervene on earth, we count back 1,260 days, and then we count back 1,290 days, we see that there's a 30-day period before the tribulation starts when the sacrifices are cut off and the abomination of desolation appears. Apparently, that 30 days is when God's people flee to the place of safety, as explained right here, and as, as we, have, we have taught for, for many years, and at least conjectured, and it appears to be, to be that, that way. Well, let's keep on reading. It says, Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. So there's another period of time. What does 1,335 days mean? Well, that's a, that's a time period that if we count again from the, the resurrection and the announcement of Christ's kingdom and, it, and the beginning of establishing that, counted back 1,335 days, then we have a 45-day period before the sacrifices are cut off, the abomination of desolation is set up. And we have, again, been taught and conjectured that that 45-day period may be intense persecution on the church before the church is then taken to a place of safety. So it's interesting to look and interesting to consider that uh, he, he talks about that. Verse 13, But go you, go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days. Again, we don't know every detail, but there is a lot that we do know, a lot that is prophesied. And the point is that there is going to be a group of people who will be protected. That's the point. Let's turn over to Ezekiel chapter 5. And Ezekiel chapter 5. Let's look quickly at a passage here. Uh, he's talking about the, uh, a, acting out a siege here. And we have applied this to end time uh, Israel. And you, verse 1, son of man, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard, then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. You shall burn with fire one-third in the midst of the city. When the days of the siege are finished, verse 2, then you shall take one-third and strike around it with the sword. One-third you shall scatter in the wind, and I will draw out a sword after them. So he's talking about how when end-time Israel is overthrown, uh, how uh, in different ways, some be being destroyed uh, you know, by pestilence, some being taken out and by and captured and enslaved, some being killed by the sword. But notice verse three: You shall also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. 
Bind them in the edge of your garment. Now, we have sometimes heard this explained, that this may be talking about God's people who are protected, that they are close to God. They're in the, in the, in the waistband of his garment. How does he look at his, his faithful and zealous people? It's interesting as well, then in verse 4, he says, Then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. So it may be, and again, some have conjectured that, uh, you know, the, the place of safety will not be the kingdom of God on earth. That some might even, for whatever reason, leave the place of safety and go back in and, and be in the tribulation. I don't know, but that certainly can be one way of looking at that. So the, the bottom line is that God will protect some of his people. Where will this place be? Where will the place of safety be? Let's turn back to Daniel chapter 11. And here is where we get a little speculative. We really don't know. That's the, that's the easy answer. Uh, but let's look at a couple of places and reasons why, um, as Mr. Armstrong used to say, Daniel chapter 11, the, the Bible really is silent on it. But if the Bible says anything about where it will be, it appears to be southern Jordan. But it really is not definitive. Uh, Daniel chapter 11, verse 40, At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack the king of the north, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. With chariots, horsemen, and many ships, he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. So at this time, uh, the United States, other English-speaking countries have already been overthrown. Europe is under the domination of the beast. Areas of the Middle East and North Africa are also as well. But one area is not under the domination of the beast, and that is southern Jordan. Why? Why is that? Well, again, the conjecture has been, could it be that God's people are taken there? And that's the speculation. Now, I know a lot of people have gotten crazy about uh, uh, being dogmatic about Petra or Petra. Uh, we, we, we simply can't be dogmatic. But as Mr. Armstrong used to say, there, there are some very interesting, intriguing references. Isaiah chapter uh, 16. Let's turn over to Isaiah chapter 16 and verse 1. Again, this area of southern Jordan uh, anciently was the area of Edom and Ammon and Moab. Isaiah chapter 16. <coughs> And verse verse one, send the lamb to the ruler of the the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah or the rock or Petra is really uh, can be referenced to that to the wilderness to the mount of the daughter of Zion for it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. Verse two, so shall be the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Take counsel, execute judgment, make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. Verse 3, hide the outcasts. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. Now, why does God say, would God say to Moab, 
Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. It's just interesting. You know, again, not dogmatic, not definitive, but why would he say that? Well, that's why some people have, have wondered, speculated, could it be in that place? Jeremiah chapter 48, and I'll just refer to this quickly. Verse 28, it says, You who dwell in Moab, leave the cities, dwell in the rock, and be like the dove which makes her nest in the sides of the cave's mouth. Verse 40, Behold, one shall fly like an eagle and spread his wings over Moab. So again, we want to be very clear. We're, we're not dogmatically saying anything that, uh, that the Petra is the place of safety, just that the, there are sort of hints, if the Bible says anything at all, that uh, they, might, they seem to refer there. Let me read from a quote from Mr. Seselka's article back in 2009, and he was referencing Mr. Armstrong and as well Mr. Meredith and Mr. O'Gwen. He says, While there are clues that Petra may be the physical location of the place of safety, God's church has not insisted dogmatically on that location. Notice what Mr. Armstrong wrote in a letter to the church in, on July 16, 1982. Quote, Brethren, I have never said that Petra definitely is the place of protection where God will take us. End quote. Similarly, Dr. Meredith stated in his sermon titled Servant Leadership, April 12, 2008, that, quote, Petra may be the place of safety. End quote. As Mr. John O'Gwen nicely summarized, quote, while the details of how and where God will protect his people are fascinating, we must all keep in mind that in the ultimate sense, our protection does not come from any place. It comes from God. And that is from uh, July, August 2001. Uh, Living Church News, is there a real place of safety? That, that last quote from Mr. O'Gwen. Let's turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 1 because we really have to put our, put our, our, uh, sink our teeth into a point here that even when it talks of the rock, even when it talks of being protected, our rock is Christ. Ultimately, our protection from, comes from that rock, not any physical place. Second Samuel chapter 22 and verse 1. Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. 2 Samuel 22 and verse 2. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge. My savior, my savior, you save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Verse 4, so shall I be saved from my enemies. Our rock is Jesus Christ. We must continually affirm that, and we do affirm that. Our life must be hidden in him, dwelling in him, him dwelling in us. And he will be our deliverer and our rock. And that's certainly the, the main overarching point here, even as we talk about this. At the same time, it does appear that somewhere on this earth, uh, God's faithful and zealous people will be protected by 
Jesus Christ, by the one who is our rock. So those are some of the scriptures that outline the prophecy that God is going to protect uh, those who are faithful and zealous. But why does it matter? Why does it matter? Why talk about it at all? In the, in the time remaining, let's talk about that. Because that perhaps is even, even uh, in, in one sense, even more important. Why does it matter? Why do we need to talk about it? Why review it? When there is some speculation involved, why even look at what God says about the future? Well, number one, number one, let's talk about a number of things. Number one, we are living in the last days. We are living in the last days, number one. We're living in the end times. We're living at the end of the age, and yet in an incredibly skeptical and doubtful and scoffing age when many scoff at the very notion that we're even in the last days. Notice in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse... Verse 1, Peter writes, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. Is it a surprise that as we get closer and closer to Christ's return, there are more and more people doubting we're even in the last days. This was prophesied as well. This was warned as well by, by Peter. He says, scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And they'll say, whatever proof you show, it doesn't, it doesn't show there's anything different about this age. This is not a unique age. We've always had cycles of this and that. And yet, there is a multitude of evidence showing that we are absolutely living in the last days. Verse 5, For they, this they willingly forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. How can we know that we are living in the last days? Well, let's review a few things. Uh, You know, we read in Matthew chapter 24 a little while ago that if Christ would not intervene, if he would not return, no flesh would be saved. Now let's think back a little bit in our history. It wasn't that long ago that you could, you could compile and, and, and bring all the weapons of every army on earth and they fire at them at each other and there's no way that it would destroy all life on the planet. But that changed, didn't it? That changed in 1945 in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And since that time, we have the capacity 
to destroy all life from this planet. Is that not one of the proofs that we certainly are living in a time when the great tribulation could occur? We also read in Daniel, in the time of the end, knowledge would increase. Uh, Here is a little article from the website industrytap.com, written by David Russell Schilling in 2013, entitled Knowledge Doubling Curve. He says, Buckminster Fuller created the knowledge doubling curve. He noticed that until 1900, human knowledge doubled approximately every century. But by the end of World War II, knowledge was doubling every 25 years. Today, things are not as simple as different types of knowledge have different rates of growth. For example, nanotechnology knowledge is doubling every two years and clinical knowledge every 18 months. But on average, human knowledge is doubling every 13 months. And according to IBM, now this was written in 2013, the, uh, the build out of the Internet of Things will lead to the doubling of knowledge every 12 hours. 12 hours. Now, I like graphs. So, you know, if, if, if you want to see this on a graph, just map it out sometime. And let the passage of time be the, the horizontal axis and the the knowledge be the vertical axis, and map the centuries. And for over for a long period of time, if the knowledge of humanity was doubling every century, that is a sort of a curve like this. It grows, but if you map it out, and if you do like the experts, how, how do they count the knowledge? I don't know. The data that we are producing, I don't know. But if you map it out, that towards our time goes up exponentially and goes through the roof. Now, is that a proof that we are living in a time that's unique to all humanity and history? Sure seems that way to me, and Daniel talked about it. It doesn't seem like this is just sort of something that happens and and then uh, happens again. There's another proof, Genesis chapter 49 and verse 1. Let's turn over to Genesis chapter 49, and maybe this one comes a little bit closer to home. Genesis chapter 49 and verse 1. There is a very fascinating passage here. Verse 1, Jacob, or Israel, called his sons together and said, Gather together. That I, verse 1, Genesis 49, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Profoundly important passage here that talks about how the, the nations of Israel would be extant, would be real nations that you could identify in the end times. They would not be lost. The last days referring in general to the time just before the Messiah coming. So Jacob, or Israel, is telling his sons what would happen to their offspring as nations in the last days? What does it say about Joseph? What does it say about our people? Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. Uh, verse 25, by the Almighty who will bless you, uh, by the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that lie beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, blessings of your father 
have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. Now, brethren, we have been born and raised in nations that are the, the, the richest in history. We have more things and we have more abundance and we have more food than anyone else on earth and probably anyone in history. We are living this prophecy. We are experiencing this prophecy. We have comforts like people have never had in history. And that was a prophecy of Joseph in the end times. And we're just used to it, you know. We just sort of, over time, take it for granted that we live in a secure and peaceful and happy and and abundant place, a place where we can pursue, uh, you know, happiness the the way we choose and the freedom we have. Is that not a proof also that we are living in the last days, even the rise to prominence of Joseph. We look at back in verse verse 23. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him, but his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. We could talk about the preeminence of, of Britain in America, which you can't explain happening naturally, and yet we have controlled commerce and been a military superpower for the last 200 plus years. And we can track specific things that God has done in our battles that have made it so, like the miracle at Dunkirk, which Australia doesn't want to hear about anymore. They banned our telecast. You know that. What an amazing thing. That's a probably shows that we're in the end times as well. They scoff at even proofs that God has protected us and backed us up. We are living proof of living in the last days. Have you ever thought about that? Just by how much abundance we have in this country. Living proof. Incredibly blessed. And yet, what are we doing with it? You know, a billion people are starving. The specter of nuclear war is no less than when it was in the 1950s. So it's important for us to understand we are living in the end times, no matter what the skeptics say. Number two, number two, because we are living in the end times, we need to understand that Bible prophecy predicts the worst time of trouble ever to come on our time. Bible prophecy predicts the worst time of trouble ever to come on our time. Why do we need to address the matter of the place of safety? Because if we're living in the last days, then the worst time of human history of, of warfare and famine ever is coming and is on our doorstep. We read of prophesied times in, in Matthew 24 and Daniel 12. Let's, let's turn over to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30. Why wouldn't we want to? Why wouldn't we need to think about and and talk about God's miraculous protection 
in a generation that is going to need it. A generation that is going to face it like no one has ever faced before. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that, are, that I have spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will bring back from captivity my people Israel and Judah. So, so clearly this was not just for the Jews. We've explained that. We, we've heard that. We've been taught that. This was talking about also Israel, which means it's talking about yet future. Because when Jeremiah was writing, Israel had been taken captive, the northern tribes, and they'd never come back. And they never have come back yet. So many think they've just been lost to history. Well, he says, prophesies, he will bring back the captivity, my people, Israel and Judah. And I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now, these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. So, again, clearly not just the Jews, but also Israel, meaning it has to be in time. For thus says the Lord, verse 5, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see? Jeremiah is saying, why do I see in in um, in vision? And, and thus says the Lord, why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor and all faces turn pale? Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. The third reference to the worst time of history ever. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble. Well, we are living in Jacob. We are living in the land of Israel. Do we need to know about it? Do we need to think about God's providence and God's comfort and God's protection for those living through this time? It is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck and I will burst your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. Some think when he says David, this is referring to Christ, but clearly it's delineated from Christ because he says they shall serve the Lord their God. That's referring to Christ and David, their king. Well, how is David going to be their king in the resurrection? So we get the time period. We understand this is speaking of the last days because David is going to be resurrected. Whom I will raise up for them. So a powerful example here that we see all three references to the worst time of trouble Ever. Reasons why we need to talk about it. Very difficult times are coming that are not that far off. You know, we've we've had so much peace, relative peace. I know we, we face dangers and it gets more dangerous over time, but you know, we haven't been run out of our neighborhoods. Uh, we haven't had our cities bombed or gassed like Syria. We don't see our men being rounded up and killed or pressed into service into rebel groups like some countries right now. And we can be lulled into thinking it will never happen here. One of our members up north, Gene Miller, 
uh, passed on some books to the church about the Holocaust. Really remarkable accounts. Firsthand, incredibly, there are some people today who, who don't believe the Holocaust happened. And yet there are so many firsthand accounts of what was going on. Just this past uh, week, we were visiting up north and, and we're talking to someone whose father was there fighting and took pictures that this person has in their possession of, of the, the camps that were the left after World War II. Remarkable that, that some are not believing that. You know, when we speak of World War II, uh, 70 to 85 million people perished. Hitler killed 6 million Jews. His stated goal was to kill every Jew. One girl, young girl escaped and relocated to Israel during, early in the war and recounted her story about being in the camps, and people did not believe her because it was so unthinkable and unbelievable. In another account, there's an eyewitness testimony from one person who survived the death camps and recalls watching the American bombers overhead and being filled with joy and hope that they would just bomb the camps where they were. Now think about the desperation that someone has to be in when they're hoping that fighter planes over them, bombers, are going to drop a bomb on their building so that they might have a chance to escape. Desperate, desperate times. Here's a passage from one child of a survivor. She recounts what it was like growing up. She says, all the time I was growing up, I couldn't bear the stories my parents told me, or rather the stories my mother told me, because my... Father generally kept quiet and had nightmares while my mother relieved herself of the terror by speaking and oddly by reliving it. The worst stories were about the separation of children and parents. My mother was in mid-adolescence when the Germans killed her parents and sister. First, her father was taken away. He was shot, then buried in the same grave he had helped to dig. The Germans picked him up one morning when they were rounding up communists and collected any Jews who happened to be about. My mother was in her house when this happened. Now, now just think about, you know, going about your business. When was the last time that you were in your house just going about your business? And this happened to this family. My mother was in her house when this happened, along with my father and her brothers, and they couldn't go outside because they would have been taken too. Some time later, the remainder of the family was carted off to a camp. There were the usual selections. My mother's mother and her young, and my and younger sister were shot. My mother escaped the same death only by a fluke when, with her mother's prompting and a guard's compliance, she ran to the side where her two brothers had been assigned to labor duties. Her mother had worried that without a woman, her sons would not be able to cook and care for themselves. So she, she pushed her daughter to go stay with your brothers. Sometimes my mother would tell me about how she ran. As she ran, she heard her sister call, Sarah, Sarah, don't leave me. And this is what this woman had to deal with her whole life. 
after living through it. Now, of course, we know that so many people have lived through horrible atrocities. Daniel and his friends lived probably through similar things. Other have in history. But World War II saw war and hatred and violence on a scale never known. And yet Jesus said it's going to be worse. You know, we don't need to be overly dramatic or gory or or scary, but we've got to understand the time that we're in, don't we? And we've got to understand just what is ahead of us. We're coming up to the worst time in history. That's good enough reason to talk from time to time about the place of safety. What's another reason to talk about this? Number three, because many in the church have abandoned the doctrine of the place of safety. As striking as it is, many who were our brethren a few decades ago have totally abandoned this doctrine since the breakup of Worldwide Church of God. Some ridicule Mr. Armstrong for some extreme positions that some took. And there were some people who got pretty kooky about it. I... I, was growing up at the time, and I remember there were some people who were a bit extreme about going to to Petra and went overboard, but that doesn't change the fact that it is prophesied that God is going to protect someone, a group of people. We don't know all the details, but it will happen somewhere. Some in the church over the years, again, have taken the view that God can just protect us in our homes. And again, he can, he can do whatever he wants. But the, the question is, is he going to do it that way? You know, when we read of our cities being bombed and besieged, that doesn't appear that that's how he's going to do it. And in fact, uh, notice in Luke chapter 17 and verse 26, we read um, a little bit of Some examples, some parallels with how he has protected people in the past. Strong parallels. Luke 17 and verse 26. Christ said, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. The ark was their place of safety. They had to leave their home. They went to their place of safety. The important thing that God is God commanded them how he was going to protect them. And then they obeyed. They followed instructions. Verse 28, likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be, will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In the days of Lot, there's another parallel. Well, what was Lot told to do? Leave. And what did the angels even had to do? Practically drag Lot out of the city. Because he delayed. You know, another thing that some over the years have said is, well, it's, it's selfish to want physical protection. It's not very spiritual. Now, again, our highest priority must be God's kingdom 
and it must be spiritual development. And if we have to give up our lives for our faith, then God help us to have the strength to do that. And at baptism, we make that commitment. But on the other hand, does he not also say some things about protection? Verse 31, In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. Why is he talking about this? He's saying when it's time to flee, don't hesitate, don't delay. And likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Again, we may have to give up our life for our faith. But in this specific context, it appears in talking about saving our life means holding on to this world, holding on to our possessions, holding on to being a part of our society and our old ways as opposed to getting out and being protected. Verse 34, I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field, one taken, the other left. It's not talking about the rapture. That's what most people think. But apparently it's talking about when it's time to go, it's time to go. No delay. Number four. Number four. Why is another reason why we must talk about it? The younger generation needs to know. The younger generation needs to know. Mr. Armstrong preached about this for decades. He talked about it way back in the 1950s. But how many with us today, have never heard Mr. Armstrong's voice, never read his writings. A whole generation has come since he's been dead. And again, not that he is the central focus of our faith, we understand, but he was the one that God used to raise up this work in the 1930s, and he was the instrument that 99% of us, when we look back, owe our calling from the work that he was willing to do that he was willing to yield himself to God to do. Dr. Meredith talked about the place of safety as well, and for over two decades he continued after Mr. Armstrong died and reminded us that God has a plan for his faithful and zealous people. But he's gone. Now Mr. Weston has taken up the mantle, and he continues to preach that same message The point is, why do we need to talk about the place of safety from time to time? If we don't, the older folks might remember, but the younger folks may never hear. So we need to review it. They need to understand. Psalm 78, notice. The young people need that understanding and that hope and the words that God gives us. Words of comfort, Psalm 78 and verse, we'll just touch on this briefly. He says, Psalm 78 and verse, verse uh, 
Verse 1, give ear, O my people, to my law, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done, and his wonderful works that he's going to do. This is one of those things that we see as a prophecy that we've got to pass on to our children. Let's make sure our children understand. Number five, number five, the doctrine of church eras has been abandoned by many, even in the church. Now let's turn over to Revelation chapter 3 because this, this correlates directly you know, we, we, we've talked about, we've all learned and heard about church eras before. That the, the, the seven churches of Revelation, they, they are referring to seven different cities in Asia Minor that John wrote to, as well as seven conditions that all of God's people need to examine themselves about, but also seven eras of the church, prophetically. We don't have time to go through every uh, detail, but suffice it to say that the Philadelphian era, pretty obvious, was the time of Mr. Armstrong and his work. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7, the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David. We've heard it explained that this is probably referring to uh, the right use of government, the right structure of government. He who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Uh, a door is talking about going through an open door and doing the work. That's how it's used in the New Testament. I know your works. See, I have set you before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. Interesting. You know, in this era, there was no correction. There's no negative. And it should give us a rough idea of how God looked and saw that era. Were there problems? Were, were people perfect? Of course not. But God saw, and and especially the faithfulness of that man, of Mr. Armstrong, and we don't worship him, but of course we're grateful that he yielded himself to God. And we are beneficiaries to, to this day. We have to remember that there are church errors, and not everybody who calls himself a member of God's church at large believes that today. Many have taken a very different approach and don't even believe in church eras anymore. That brings us to our final point, that judgment is on the church now. 1 Peter chapter 4.17 says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. We have to understand we're at a critical juncture in the history of the church. And judgment is on us now. Does that mean a sentencing? No, that means that we are being watched, that God is, is looking to see how we respond. He's giving us some gentle correction from time to time. 
And he's wanting us to listen. And that leads us to the message to Laodicea. Brethren, if we understand that around probably the time of the death of Mr. Armstrong, the Philadelphian era ended, then there are some really strong warnings to listen to and look at as we look at Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14. What are some lessons that we can learn from this? Verse 14 and verse 1. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You know, is, is God in large part pleased with this era, with the time period we're living in, with the vast majority of God's people? I mean, just read it. With the predominant spirit of this age, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know you're wretched and miserable, poor, blind and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne. Brethren, what is the message for us? You know, the correction to Laodicea gives us clues how to be protected. Where is there ever a prophecy of calamity coming without an opportunity to escape from it? Everywhere you find in the Bible when there's calamity coming, when God is prophesying calamity... He gives a warning. There's a reason why he says it's coming, so that the people can repent. And as we read this, we should take it as an opportunity to learn what he's talking about. Number one, what what, what are some sub-points? What's the correction to Laodicea that we can apply to ourselves? The name Laodicea itself means the people judge. The people judge. Brethren, are we a judging people? Personally, and also, we have to understand, you know, one of the interesting things that have happened in our era, a lot of people, of God's people, have been deluded into thinking they should vote for their leaders. And they've totally gone a different path in terms of how they see church government. Some of God's churches do that. Brethren, that's wrong. It's not biblical. Mr. Armstrong vehemently taught against it. And Scripture nowhere treats democracy as something that should be done in God's church. One example that is brought up is in Acts chapter 1 about Matthias, when they had to choose a replacement for Judas. That was not casting ballots. That was casting lots. Very, very different. We are living in a time when the people judge. Let's make sure we examine ourselves. 
We examine ourselves. Are we falling into that? And you know, as, as young people, as singles, we need to think about, as we are even thinking about dating and marriage, you know, there are a lot of people who are on different pages today. As we think about someone that we are thinking about marrying, are you on the same page in terms of church eras? Are we on the same page in terms of what does what's this warning mean to us? Are we on the same page in terms of the focus and emphasis of the work? That's another element here. He says, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. God is concerned about the work. God is concerned about his work and about us being a part of his work. You know, another thing that has been cast aside by many in our day is the work is over. You've heard that before. That's the predominant theme of our day. Tens of thousands of people have walked away saying the work is over. And yet to respond to the warning, we've got to do God's work. Hold your place there and go over to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 1. The warning message. What is the work about? It's about the future. It's about God's kingdom being set up on this earth. But it's also a warning about what's coming. So people can deliver their soul, as we see here in Ezekiel 33. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people. Say to them, when I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning... If the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take warning. But he who takes warning will save his life. Notice verse 7. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. Verse 9, nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your soul. Brethren, is there any connection for us being protected in the place of safety and doing the work of warning the world? Absolutely. We have to be a part of God's work in doing it. Not just to deliver our own lives, but but he says that that is a part of it. Going back to Revelation chapter 3. One of the warnings, he says, you are rich and increased with goods. You know, the warning is not to be self-sufficient. As we hear so many times, there's so many distractions in this world. There's so many things that are vying for our attention. Is it time to put away the distractions? Is it time to get serious and do the things that we know that we're supposed to do to get close to God? 
And also is the warning having to do with, you know, do we feel like we've arrived spiritually? Do we feel like we can't be taught anymore spiritually? Like we are rich and become wealthy, have need of nothing spiritually. A lot of people have come to that conclusion in our day. I can do my own research on the Internet. I can't be taught anything. I've heard that already. We have to be very careful if we hear ourselves saying these types of things. That's a huge danger. Every single one of us needs each other, needs the church, needs to be taught. That's one of the lessons of of Laodicea, the warning to the people who are living in the era of Laodicea. It's not a popular message of our day. Why? Because we're living in the era of Laodicea. Another subpoint is focusing on growth in our trials. And if we're willing to be tried now, if we're willing to be refined now, if we're willing to be purified now, maybe we don't have to be purified in that fire ahead. So many people are in trials. Maybe you're in a trial. Maybe a health trial. Maybe financial or personal relationship. What fiery trial are you in, brethren? Are you running from it? Or are you seeking to learn every lesson you can from it? Because maybe, just maybe, if we're willing to submit to the test now, we won't have to prove our faithfulness down there, down the road, in that fire. Where do we stand? And why are we tried? And why do we go through trials? God is using every single trial, and a lot of people are in grinding, difficult trials. Why is that? Because God is refining every one of us. Let's not shirk it off. Let's not throw it off. Let's not run from it. Let's grab onto and engage God and draw close to Him and trust Him as we prepare for what's coming ahead. God gives us a blueprint for how to navigate the years just ahead of us, and He gives us encouragement He gives us comfort. And how thankful are we for that? And reason to hope. Let's turn over in conclusion to Proverbs 14 and verse 26. Proverbs 14 and verse 26. Because it's not just enough to prove and show and believe that, yes, this is going to happen. Why do we need to talk about it? Because it's coming on our day. Because so many people don't believe it today. Because there's a scoffing attitude today. Because the whole idea of church eras has gone out the window among some today. Because we're all being tried today. That's why we need to talk about it. Proverbs 14 and verse 26. In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence... And his children will have a place of refuge. Our Father, 
cares for us. Our Father loves us, our elder brother, Jesus Christ. And as we fear him, not as a monster, not being terrified of him, but turning our hearts to him, turning our attention to him, turning our focus to him, and allowing him to purify us and help us and refine us and prepare us for his kingdom. And yes, go through whatever we have to go through to get there. But he does give some promises of protection for somebody. Why not let that be us? Let's be grateful and thankful for the promise and the prophecy of the place of safety. God is going to protect a group of people. Just sitting here doesn't get us into the place of safety. But I want to be personally where I feel like I have the greatest chance to be guided and helped and taught and encouraged and even spurred and provoked to grow and overcome myself, and I hope you do as well. Brethren, let's be thankful we have a merciful and faithful high priest and father. It's going to be so much more important in the dark days coming that we are close to him just before the resurrection and Christ's return. We can face it with faith and courage, and God can help us. And part of that is understanding and valuing, appreciating, and holding on to the promise and the prophecy of the place of safety.